questions 19 through 28. Last week we didn't we didn't even open the booklet. Uh, we we were primarily looking at the topic in an introductory way. The topic of these questions 19 through 28, which is very specifically the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Mediator between God and man. And so we we want to study uh, in this class the glory the glory of Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. And last week, uh, we made a couple of primary distinctions. When we speak about the glory of Christ, the mediator, we, we, we set aside from the outset the glory, the, the, the invisible, eternal, uh, undisclosable, if you will, glory of God as He is in Himself, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, as the as the the Psalm or the the hymn has it, uh, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Uh, we understand that glory is there, and we we adore it without knowing it, if if we can say it in that way. So there's that glory. That's not the subject of our our class. It can't be the subject of the study of man at all. Uh, but then secondly. And this is our subject, the glory of God as He has come forth in the Mediator. The glory as He's come forth, as He's disclosed Himself, as He's revealed Himself, as He's acted as the Mediator between God and man. That's the glory that we're interested in. We want to see His person and His works. But then we made another distinction because we can. The, the, there's two various perspectives that we can have on that glory of the mediator and that is the perspective of those in heaven and those on earth those in heaven have what theologians have historically called the beatific vision they see him as he is and thus are like him uh, we do not have that here we're looking through clouds and and uh, uh, our view is very dismal in one sense but on the other hand because we remember Christ's words that he would send his spirit and the spirit would Receive, Christ said. He will receive of mine and show it unto you. And so the church in this world is vitally connected to the church in heaven or the church militant here below with the church triumphant, uh, which is at rest, beholding the very face of God. We, we do not enjoy that uh, with our own eyes or the eyes of their spirits since they're justified uh, spirits if, if you will, uh, the resurrection hasn't occurred yet. That's that's another subject. But there's their immediate view and their conformity to Christ in a way that we don't experience. And yet, in some ways, there there is an analogy, and it's a very strong analogy, with their viewing and becoming like Him and our viewing by faith through the Holy Spirit, viewing those secret things of God that God has given that no eye has seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man from the beginning of the world. These things have not entered into the hearts of carnal men. But those of us who are believers, who have the Spirit, we have been given that Spirit, as Paul says in Corinthians, so that we might know the things. This is the most glorious assertion, that we might know those things that are freely given to us of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, to know something of those things, not just in the mind, but in the very heart and in the breast, as it were to know those things that are freely given to us of God. This the natural man can't receive, he can't perceive it. Uh, but every Christian, in his particular degree and capacity, absolutely does perceive it and know the things that are freely given to him of God. 
That's the glory that we're interested in here. What we can view of Christ who is in heaven right now interceding for us, performing his priestly, kingly, prophetic offices uh, on our behalf, on behalf of the church. That's what we're interested in viewing. We're doing that by means of the catechism. So uh, let's open with a, a uh, an utterance of Moses, the man of God, out of Psalm 90. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump right in to the catechism itself. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a great statement that, that You, and not only You, Father, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, true God, are from everlasting to everlasting. It's inconceivable to our minds. And so, help our hearts to adore and to worship and to contemplate the things that you have revealed to us in your word and by your spirit. Help us in this hour. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, let's jump right in. What I want to do is just read them without any comment at all, 19 through 28. So if you have your book, let's open up to 19. We'll begin here, which really is, is, um, it's a little difficult because we're starting in the middle of of a story, really, when we begin in 19. But there's a good reason for starting in 19. So let's begin, and we'll just read straight through 28, through to 28, and including 28. Question 19. What is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God having out of... Answer, I'm sorry. Answer, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Question 21. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Answer. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Question 23. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer. Christ as our Redeemer executed the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. I I will interrupt just at this point to say this question 23 is kind of a typical device that the catechism uh, is using, and it's a a template here. It, It actually contains the next five questions, if you notice it. Christ is our Redeemer, executes the office of a prophet, that's the next question, a priest, the one after that, and a king, the one after that, both in his estate of humiliation, the one after that, 
and exaltation, the one after that. So there's really no substance to study in question 23 except just to register the fact that it's setting us up for the next five questions. It's, it's, it's a wonderful device for organization. So question 24, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executed the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's answer, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And then finally, question 28. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Answer, Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Well, that's, that's the subject of our study for however many weeks uh, it's, it's, it's going to take. Well, it's great material. I hope you're edified just in going through that and, and forcing into your mind some of these great, great uh, biblical truths and themes about our mediator, Jesus Christ the Lord. All right, well, let's, let's, let's start. I'm going to resist the temptation to make any other kind of uh, comments on, on what we just read because there'll be plenty of time for that. But let us delve in to the particular question that we're looking at this morning. And we're not even going to finish question 19 this morning, but we're going to start it. Um, we may not even finish the first clause in it. The clause that, that I want us to hone in on is... In the answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. Now, if your mind immediately runs through the story of the scriptures, you, you realize that this is, this is dense. I mean, this is, there is, it is pregnant. There's so much in here. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. Right there, we have wrapped up in that. And to some degree, we, we might have to go back and fill it in by, by questions that are previous to this. Because as I said, we're coming into the middle of a, of a story here. We're beginning at the, at the middle of a story. But just in that statement, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. We have at least implied the covenant of works that God made with Adam. The fall, original sin, the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of God. Uh, you understand what I mean then when I say it's very weighty. There's so much in here. So we'll do what we can to get as far as we can this morning. So uh, all mankind by their fall. Let's just start with that. Let's break up our clause into these two parts. All mankind by their fall and lost communion with God by that fall. So all mankind by their fall. Uh, note 
right from the outset, it does not say the man by his fall, which would be the logical thing you would think, because we're speaking of one single man, Adam. It does not say the man by his. It doesn't even say the man and the woman by their fall. But it says all mankind by their fall. So there's a, there, there's a, um, a presupposition already running through this. And that, in order to fill out that presupposition, you would have to go back and look at, at earlier questions, uh, which... I don't think we're going to bother doing, but you're, you're free to do that whenever you want. You all, I'm sure, already know uh, the essence of the answer, so we're not talking to uneducated people here, certainly. Um, uh, I have a high respect for what I know in this room, what we all already understand about Christian doctrine. So all mankind by their fall. So immediately uh, you see, and again, it's, it, it, we're informed by this in the earlier questions and by the Bible itself, which we'll see in due time, that there's a federal connection. Federal meaning covenantal. There's an agreement uh, that unites parties. That's what federal basically means. It's a, it's a word of union and covenant or agreement. So there's a federal connection binding the entire race of mankind as one under the headship of this first man. That's, that's what's packed into this all mankind by their fall, even though uh, none but Adam and Eve were there present physically when the fall occurred. We, we, all their descendants were bound, all of Adam's descendants were bound to him by a federal connection uh, in which his actions were to stand for the whole. So, this is really beautiful because already in, we see a negative effect of that federal union. That is, we, by uh, our connection with Adam, fell with him. That's a negative connection. But already in that first man, we're seeing a type. We're seeing a figure. That's the word that Paul uses. Uh, a figure of him who was to come. Uh, Adam was a great type of the mediator Christ Jesus. Paul explicitly has reference to this in Romans 5 quite at length, but the, the key phrase of Paul is Adam, who was the figure of him who was to come. So already we see, in a number of ways actually, uh, an analogy between Adam and Christ, these two great historical men. Uh, first, Adam was made in the image of God. Christ certainly is the image of the invisible God. Uh, Adam was given dominion over the creatures to subdue them. Uh, this, another is, this is another aspect of, of the headship, the kingship of Christ. He's given dominion over all things to subdue them. We read that very word in, in question, I think, 26. Christ's office as a king. Subduing, having dominion over. But, but primarily what Paul is interested in Romans 5 is this third aspect that, that we're highlighting, and that is that both were constituted a federal head with a particular covenant that was made with each one of those men uh, as head of a great body of people. Head of a great body of people. So uh, we could say that all those in Adam, which are all those who descended by him through ordinary generation uh, or descend, were descended of him by ordinary generation, that goes back to uh, an earlier catechism question, uh, all of those who were in Adam were in his historical acts 
of, of disobedience and then the consequence of, of that, the degradation, the utter degradation. So all the acts of Adam's disobedience and degradation, uh, we, coming into the world, conceived in sin, were participants in that. All of that, all of Adam's disobedience and degradation were reckoned, as it were, to us. But then on the other hand, all those in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, all those in Christ were with him in all of his historical acts of obedience as opposed to the disobedience of Adam. All of Christ's obedience and exaltation. So Paul, again, is very explicit in the New Testament about this in our relationship to Christ. We were with him in his death. We died with Christ. We were buried with him. Uh, We were ascended with him. We were raised up together with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, this is, as I say, again, very explicit with Paul. This is, this is almost the, 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 the keynote of his Christology is that Christ is doing none of those things by himself as a, as a private person, but he was doing all of these things as a covenantal head, bringing all of those who are in him with him in all of these historical acts. The, the word that is used, I think, in Isaiah 53 is seed, um, which is very appropriate. Uh, he shall see his seed and shall be satisfied after he had been bruised for our sin. So we, as Christians, we are a people that are born through the labors. The, the, you could say birthing labors. There's a, there is a connection in that way in the scriptures that Christ in his agony birthed a seed and that seed is the church. So there's the, there's, there's, that the, the, the first man, Adam, and the last man, Christ, or the first and the second Adams. These are, again, this is all language that Paul uses. So I, I know I'm not saying anything that nobody in here doesn't know already, but this is where we're starting in the, in the catechism because we're studying the glory of the mediator. All right, well, let's move on to lost communion with God. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. Well, we have to think for a moment what it was like for the man and the woman before they lost communion with God. We'll just think of this briefly. We want to understand what they fell from, right? We don't just, we just, don't just throw out the word fall as if it's a, 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 I think grammatically you would say a transitive verb. It was a fall from something. So that's what we want to see what they fell from. So, again, Paul alludes to this in Ephesians and in Colossians when he speaks of being renewed in the new man uh, after the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness of God. One of the phrases Paul uses is righteousness and true holiness. So that gives us a clue as to what the image was. There's volumes have been written on this, no doubt, and we can speculate as to all of the aspects uh, of the image of God that was in man. But, but right at the heart and the core of that image was this him being made in righteousness and true holiness. There was no mixture. There was no darkness of sin at all. This is something we can't exp- We don't know what it's like. We can try to imagine it, but all our imaginations are going to be inaccurate at some level and fall below the pure, unalloyed pleasure that Adam and Eve experienced and enjoyed the blessedness that they enjoyed before sin entered into the world. They were as God made them to be, which was very good. We can't conceive of what that 
was like. He was, and some of the Puritans used this imagery for man in, in that pre-sin, pre-misery state. Adam was as the temple of God. This is a fit way to describe what he was. He was as the temple of God on earth. Uh, his whole body was like the temple of God. His mind was like, if you think of the temple, his mind was like the lamp of the knowledge of God burning night and day in the holy place. And his, his heart was like the law, like the tables of law that was placed securely in the ark that was behind the veil under the mercy seat uh, in the holy of holies. This is what Adam was like. He was a living temple. In fact, that's the name verbatim of one of the great works by John Howe, the Puritan, the living temple. This is, this is what he was depicting, was what man was like, what he lost, and then in Christ, what was gained to even surpass that original living temple. So Adam's communion, Eve's communion with God was immediate. In other words, unmediated. This is before there was a mediator. Not before he was ordained, but it was before he began the work of his mediation in the garden, before sin had commenced. Well, it was, as I said before, it was pure pleasure. Uh, unmixed pleasure with no sin but it wasn't an immutable state it was not an immutable state in fact Adam himself and this is why the state was not immutable because Adam himself was not immutable he couldn't be immutability is a divine perfection no matter how good no matter how very good man was made God could not in that state before a mediator make him immutable if you think about it Change was the very first, you, you could say, change was the very first trait or the aboriginal birthmark of his creation. He had been non-being for all eternity. We can't, we can't even conceive of this. He was non-being for all eternity and then suddenly he began to be. So change is the very first mark of our existence as creatures. We can never escape it. We can't escape it. It's built into the fabric of creaturehood. Not just inanimate objects, but living beings as well. And so, being that he had been non-being for all eternity, and now suddenly he came to be, to be something, he was mutable. And being mutable, no sooner did the tempter come and tempt him, than he fell. No, nobody knows, and there's all kinds of speculation as to how soon the fall occurred, how long did he maintain his integrity. Uh, generally speaking, we assume it was a very, very short period of time. And we don't, we don't really need to go beyond that. So immediately he, and in fact, all the world with him, which we've already established, all mankind by their fall. So Adam and the whole world with him became guilty before God right in that moment. The word that Paul uses in Romans 3 is, is hupatikos. It's a great word. It, 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 it's a short word, but it, it has a long meaning to it, which is, he who was under sentence of judgment awaiting execution. So like a man in death row in which there's no reprieve, there's no way out, no hope. He was sentenced to judgment and he just awaited like the, like, like the, the, the evil spirits who are in the chains of darkness, Peter, Peter uh, describes in Second Peter, in chains of darkness, awaiting their doom. That's what man was plunged into. 
So that's his guilt. That's part of what we call original sin, but it's only half of it, uh, the guilt that was incurred. Uh, Secondly, there was his nature. His whole nature was immediately corrupted from that original righteousness and holiness, true holiness, again, as Paul says. uh, Paul again, so much of Paul is helpful for us when we're talking about the beginning of the world. Paul uses this phrase for the Gentiles, and it's equally applicable to Adam the moment he fell. Uh, in the va- walking in the vanity of his mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That is such a poignant, poignant assertion and sentence. In the vanity of his mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. So he suffered, and again, all mankind with him, suffered an an immediate degradation of the mind, of the affections, of the will. All that's built in, and you can see it if you take that that verse apart. The understanding darkened, his mind was degraded. Uh, In the vanity of his mind. Uh, Romans 3. Again, this is completely descriptive of Adam. After the fall, there is none righteous, none that understands, none that seek after God. They are all, that is not just Adam, but all of those who have descended from him by ordinary generation. They are all gone out of the way and together become worthless. Worthless is a great word too. Uh, Worthless, the King James uses the term unprofitable. I really like worthless better. It has this idea of being useless, that is fallen, if you will, from, from the purpose for which something is made. It becomes worthless. It becomes useless. You can't use it anymore. You know, if you're digging in your garden with a shovel and it breaks when you, when you try to dig the hole, it's worthless. You throw it out. It's no, it, it no longer can attain the purpose for which it was made because it's broken. Well, this, this is what has happened to all mankind, become worthless. Constitutionally unfit to fulfill his chief end. And of course that takes us right back to question one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man for which he was created is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This for Adam and Eve was a thing no longer attainable. It was entirely out of their reach. That's what it means to be alienated from the life of God. So, and again, historically you can trace this in, in, in the history itself. So you see Adam, as soon as he sins... When he hears the voice of God confronting him for his sin, what does he do? We all know exactly what what he does. He flees and hides. In essence, he's thrusting himself away from the perfect blessedness of God's face, the sunshine of God's face, if you will. Everything that made Adam whole, that gave him well-being, that gave him peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, he himself is thrusting himself away from because he's alienated from that life of God because of his sin. And again, all of those with him. And so this is the first principle of all human action ever since the fall for us to hide in view of our sin from God. There is this consciousness and this also we can include in something of the image of God uh, which we call conscience. And again, that could be, uh, there could be all kinds of debate about that. But this, this sense 
of God, which Calvin himself actually makes a great deal of, this sense of God uh, that is inviolable in the human person makes us deeply sensible and ashamed, just like Adam was in the garden when we sin and we do everything we can to throw obstacles between ourselves and God, again, in our carnal, in our natural state. Young children especially know this. As they begin growing up and come out of, coming out of some sense of innocence, and they get, begin to be conscious, conscious of the lust that's in their heart, the dishonesty, uh, the covetousness, the cravings for things that are unwholesome, and going after them, and then they feel guilty, and they begin to hide from God. They certainly begin to hide from their parents at some extent. Uh, this is a universal human experience, and psychologists try to come up with all kinds of ideas to justify it. We have in the plain words of Scripture the, the total explanation for this phenomenon. So it's the first principle of all human action, and just like uh, that great law of motion uh, that something will continue as it is unless acted upon by an outside force, that's what we have been thrust into and have thrust ourselves into by our sin, is this motion away from God, from the blessedness of His face, and unless acted upon by an outside force, this is the fate of all humanity. And it's a miserable state. It's a miserable state of unbecoming, if you will, from His original state of purity and bliss and blessedness in the garden. So both of these things together then, the guilt of his person, the corruption of his whole nature is what we call original sin. And you can see that in question 18, uh, the one previous to the one that we're beginning right now. Guilt, corruption, that is original sin. The want of original righteousness and the gaining of original sin. Ecclesiastes 9.3, this, this sums up so well the state of humanity today. These are the words of Solomon. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. I just, I love that. Uh, I don't love it because it's happy, but I love it because it so well encapsulates our natural condition. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So you realize that for me and all of us in this room, for every human being, that the smallest motion of sin in our breast is like another fall of man. Uh, it's an act of madness. We're, we, you, are doing, every time you sin, the smallest motion uh, and frequently as Christians what we begin to recognize is that, that so much, uh, perhaps the most of our sin, it, is not deliberate acts, but they're motions. It, it, it's the old word is concupiscence. They're the motions of sin that rise up in our heart, the lust that goes after a creaturely object. If it's a lawful object, it may go after it inordinately. That is, in an overabundance so that it sins. Uh, very often, our heart is rising up before we even have a chance to check it. It's going after inordinate objects. That is, things that are sin in themselves to do. And immediately we break that law of God, even before we've had a chance to calculate anything. That's original sin. That's the corruption of our nature. And it is sin itself. It is sin itself. It's contrary to the life of God. Uh, and it comes under his ban and his displeasure and his condemnation. And so, so you, every time 
you feel that motion of sin in your heart, you're doing what you can to bring down the glory and the majesty and the authority of God and to thrust yourself away from the blessedness of His face. You, you are committing another fall of man if it was in your power to do so. And you're doing it every day. This is, this is what makes our condition, naturally speaking, so abysmal, so abominable, so damnable. And it's why we love to open the Word of God and contemplate the glory of the Mediator Himself. He's our life and our sun and our shield. And everything that was lost is restored and infinitely more because we're united to God in a way that Adam never could have been apart from the Mediator. That was, that was glory that Adam had. But it is nothing to what God in Christ Jesus has called us to through the Mediator. And He is the object of our study. So we're going to continue to press on. So that's all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. But we've left out the most important part of that statement. And we'll continue this, not next week. Uh, Next week, Dave Chilton will be here. And so he'll be doing the Sunday school hour and I I believe the following hour as well. Um, So we'll skip a week and then we'll come back and and we'll pick up and uh, what we're about to be introduced to right now and that is in that phrase that Paul used alienated from the life of God the life of God we want to ask the question well what is the life of God what is God that's question four in the shorter catechism and we do have a few minutes left so I want to just introduce the topic by reading we started reading the shorter catechism I I want to read question four in the shorter catechism because now we're interested and we want to spend the next hour just asking this question, what is God? And we'll see what a great height we have fallen from when we begin to gaze insofar as we're able to on God as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. So question four in the Shorter Catechism, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, they're wonderful words to read. Uh, Let's mount up a little bit higher and go to the larger catechism, which you don't have unless you have one of those Reformation study Bibles. You've got it in the back of that, I think. I'm not positive. But let's go to the larger catechism, question 7. And I will read this. This answer is a little longer, and it becomes more glorious. We go deeper, as it were, into the life of God. Question 7, larger catechism. What is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Marvelous. There's so much in there. Now, let's mount up even higher than the larger catechism and go to the confession itself, Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, to chapter 2. And we'll conclude with with the reading of chapter 2. And just listen carefully. Uh, Nothing gets sweeter than than this. I, I, I... 
I checked myself last week when I said there's no greater doctrine than the glory of the mediation of Jesus Christ, His person and His work. And that's true. There's no greater doctrine. But it's also true there's no greater doctrine than the doctrine of God Himself, which we are reading here in question two. There's no greater doctrine than either of these, which makes sense because there's one God. But there's one God in three persons, equal in power and dignity and essence. So the doctrine of Christ, the mediator, in one person, two natures in one person, and the doctrine of God, one nature, three persons, are, are both infinitely glorious. And so if you're forced to choose which doctrine you like better, uh, you, you just walk away from a question like that because it's unanswerable. It's all wrapped up into the glory of God in Christ Jesus. God in Christ Jesus. Never think of God without thinking of Christ Jesus. Never think of Christ Jesus without thinking of God. So, let's read this and we'll close. Uh, Chapter 2, point 1. And there's three points. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, most gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Article 2. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, Whatsoever himself pleaseth, in his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commandments. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service or obedience he is pleased to require of them and then finally point three in the unity of the godhead there be three persons of one substance power and eternity god the father god the son and god the holy ghost the father is of none neither begotten nor proceeding the son is eternally begotten of the father the holy ghost eternally proceeding from the father and the son Well, that's the entirety of chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you, I hope, feel overwhelmed 
when your, your mind confronts these descriptions of God, of the life of God, of the eternal, immutable, infinite, unchanging life of God. It, it's just incredible to ponder. And it's, it's the well-being and it's the health of every Christian to ponder these things, to look, as it were, as much as is possible through the mediator. And remember, the mediator in his divine nature is all the things we just read. We're not just speaking of God the Father when we just read this description. We're, we're, we're seeing the glory of the mediator as well in his divine nature, which in time was going to assume and to take on our flesh for the purposes of redemption. So what a glorious th- theme. And when you think of this life of God, that, that Adam, in his capacity, without sin, was enjoying in an unmediated way, which again, we can't conceive of this, we can't grasp it. But when you think of that, and then you think of the fall, uh, the words of Anselm come to mind. Uh, Saint Anselm. Well, maybe they don't. But if you've read Anselm, these words of Anselm would come to mind. And it's, it's, it, there's so much that Anselm writes on this. Uh, Anselm was a medieval uh, Christian who lived uh, right around the year 1000. So it's easy to remember. He says this, and we'll close, close with this. Put us back in the mood, as it were, of the fall. And then we can anticipate the life of God and, and look peering into that through the mediator uh, next time. This is what Anselm says when he contemplates the fall from the beauty and the fullness and blessedness of life that God is. Oh, from what height have we been thrown down? To what depth struck down? From the vision of God into our own blindness, into the bitterness and terror of death. Oh, wretched change. Our loss is heavy. Our sorrow heavy. Everything is now a burden. We know something of that in our experience, don't we? We absolutely do. Uh, But while the outer man is wasting away, as as we've heard very recently in the preaching, uh, the inner man is being renewed day by day until the promise of Christ that we will be conformed to his image, the prayer of Christ that we would be so, will be fulfilled. And we live in that hope. And in the meantime, we study with faith and through the Holy Ghost, we study the glory of our great mediator, Jesus Christ. And in his name, we'll dismiss. So you're dismissed.